Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. And if I remember correctly, I believe today is show number 25. And, Bob, could you? Uh, yes. Yes, thank you very much, Bob. I forgot to write that down before we started. Anyway, what we talked about the last time that we met, we talked about seller financing, or as sometimes referred to as creative financing. And the one thing that I really wanted to stress to everyone, and I think when I went back and I took a look at that other show, was the fact of making sure that you really understand that these types of financing programs will really show up when the interest rates get to be extremely high or tighten up. In other words, the Federal Reserve continues to raise the interest rates, which drives the mortgage interest rates up higher. People still need to sell homes. They uh, still need to move. People still die. They still get divorced. Those situations still come up. People are in, in places where they don't necessarily want to be stuck with two house payments. Uh, they, in order to help and help buyers be able to buy homes, they'll start to become creative and find different ways to handle the financing. So that's what this chapter is about. I think I also mentioned during that period of time, if you probably went out and talked to your local real estate agent or broker and said, I was watching this show with this uh, guy from Sac City, and he was talking about these programs, and they probably, if they hadn't been in business for a number of years, they'd probably say, this guy is crazy. And I think I mentioned that the last time. And the reason why is because for the last number of years, we've all been in a situation in which we, you know, when we got ready to buy a home, we went down to the local bank. We shopped around a little bit. We found the best interest rates. They were fairly low. We could afford to, you know, we could afford to, to, to uh, the monthly payments. They weren't really that high. We've seen interest rates in the last uh, three, four, five years that were even as low as, uh, in some cases, as low as five percent on fixed rate loans. So, you know, now we're moving into a tighter market. So we may see some of this. I would venture to say you probably are not going to see these programs come in you know, full bore or come in a lot until the interest rates get probably above 7 or 8%, then people are going to have to start to become somewhat creative. Also, the other thing I want to mention, too, is when you read some of this stuff in the book regarding things like assumptions, keep in mind that those laws have, over the years, have been tightened up, where the lender has tried very hard to prevent people from just out and out assuming a loan without getting some kind of permission from them. And the reason why is because when they've made the loan, they've looked at that individual's credit, they've looked at what that person makes for a living, and they want to really say, you know what, we want to have an opportunity to take a look at that individual to see whether or not they're a good credit risk before we go ahead and let them take the loan over. So a lot of these laws have tightened up and have changed over these years. Anyway, to move on, we talked about several different types of loan programs. We said, you know, you could have where the property is free and clear. You owe nothing on the property at all. You want to sell it. You decide for whatever reason that, uh, you know, that the interest rates are extremely high. And for you to attract a buyer, what you're going to do is be willing to carry the loan. That would be one scenario. Another scenario would be where maybe you're going to have somebody take over an existing loan that you have. And we talked a lot about making sure that the, uh, that the clients understand and that the lender is involved so that they don't all of a sudden find out that, you know, somebody else is making the payments and say, wait a minute, there's a, a clause in our, in our contract that says called an alienation clause. And if you sell the property to somebody else, we have the right to go ahead and call the loan all due and payable. So you want to make sure of that. So we talked about those kinds of loans. We also talked about something called an all-inclusive 
uh, note and deed of trust or a wraparound deed of trust. And, and what that was is where you create a note, more or less uh, like a loan, that includes both the existing first loan and then you carry your equity all within this one loan package. What ends up happening is, is that the buyer pays the payments to you you turn around and you make the payments to the bank, and then you'll also be getting the interest on your equity. And we went through a little bit of a, an explanation about how that can be an advantage to you as, if you will, from an investment standpoint, where you may be able to get a higher rate of return on your money. And we went and we talked about that. What we want to do now is we want to just mention something, because there's a lot more to cover. Uh, in, uh, in your book, and we've talked about this before, we talked about land contracts, and I'm just going to point to what this is here on my old friendly document camera here, a land contract. And as I've mentioned before, during the government financing portion of this class, what we did is we mentioned the fact that uh, CalVet, which is a government program, a California veterans program, uses land contracts when they help uh, – help veterans buy homes. And so this is something that is not an unknown quantity or an unknown thing. It is used. But anyway, I'll just read this really quick. It just says, in some areas, pop, uh, a popular form of purchase money financing is the land contract. This type of financing has many of the same advantages as a purchase money mortgages and trustees, such as freedom from institutional loan qualifying standards, deferral of income taxation, and flexibility of terms. Its main disadvantage when compared to the purchase money mortgage is that the land contracts cannot be sold to Fannie Mae. And it goes on and it says, although a few private secondary market investors may be willing to buy the contracts. Okay, so keep in mind what you're really doing with a land contract. And by the way, title insurance companies have these land contracts that they go through and speci uh, specify the language, and they will agree to insure the land contract. In other words, you know, all those legal terms that we talked about the last time, they will make sure that they're all included, and they will insure these. Again, if you get involved with this, it's very, very important that the client understands. You may very well have to have an attorney involved to, you know, possibly if, you, if you're preparing some documentation. And again, if it gets to be much, very popular, you'll see where there'll be more and more information available on this kind of a, a, of a financing program. Suffice it to say, though, what's ending up happening is, is that the seller is maintaining title to the property. What's happening is, is that you're entering into this land contract. The concept behind it is that the security for the property is going to be the property that you own. So if you're the seller, you still maintain title in it. The buyer has the right to live in the home. And then based on the circumstances of your contract, you will deliver title to that individual at some point in the future. It could be, for example, when the house is completely paid off, you will turn around and give them title, or it might be some event prior to that. Again, you want to make sure that this has been reviewed and checked by your real estate broker. Make sure that the uh, contracts that you're using are something that the title insurance company would insure the language very, very important part of, of, of uh, these land contracts, if you will. Moving on from there, another uh, type of program that may very well you may see is something called, if I can find it here, I'll just take a second, is called a lease, a lease with an option to buy. Now, again, what you have to do is put yourself in the frame of mind 
of why people would maybe want to enter into this agreement. The concept is this. A renter, person that wants to rent property, okay, or for example, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if somebody's moving to town, this would be maybe the scenario. Somebody's moving to town. They're new to the Sacramento area. They would like to or they believe that they're going to go ahead and continue to live in Sacramento. Maybe their employer is going to keep them here for a long period of time. They would like to buy a house at some point in the future. They're not familiar with the community or they want to have some time to shop around and look for what houses are for sale. And what they decide is as they're going around and looking at houses that are possibly for rent for their family to move into, they happen to see a house that they really like. They go, you know what, this is really a nice house. It's got a... It's got enough bedrooms, it's got enough bathrooms, it's got a nice pool in the backyard, it's got a storage space for my RV, it's got everything I want. And what I would like to do is I'd like to really go ahead and rent it from the owner and uh, with the idea in mind that, hey, you know, if in the future, within, say, the next year or two, I'd like to have the opportunity, if I want to, if I desire as the renter, to go ahead and buy this property. Now, there's an advantage to disadvantages or advantages to both sides of this. From the buyer's standpoint, what happens is that they have the ability, if they've negotiated well, to pin down the price and the terms of the transaction on the day that they've entered into the contract. The advantage to them is, especially if the market happens to go up, say, fairly dramatically, like if they happen to do this at the bottom of the market, and all of a sudden next year the housing starts to really go up in price, if they've already got their price nailed down, then they can have where they've tied up the property for maybe a small amount of money. Maybe it might be as simple as maybe their monthly rent payment, and maybe they've given some additional money. In fact, in most cases they've given some money. They've maybe made a small down payment, uh, maybe three, four, five thousand dollars That's maybe a non, it's not a non-refundable uh, deposit, but the idea is they've tied this property up, which could be a fairly large property or fairly expensive property, with a small amount of money down. So that's the advantage to them. Another advantage to them is, is that if the property happens to go down in value, or maybe it doesn't go up as much as they think it will, they, it's an option. So they have a choice. They may get done at the end of maybe the year that they're going to rent the property with the option, maybe two years, and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. I don't want to go ahead and buy this house. I found some other house that I want to buy or maybe it didn't go up in value to the extent that I thought it would. So they can just choose to not do it. That's it. And what they've essentially lost at that time is whatever deposit that they've put down, if they've put one down. Or maybe they've agreed, for example, to pay additional rent. Maybe the landlord wanted $1,500 a month in rent, and this tenant has agreed to pay an additional two, three, or four hundred dollars a month with the, with the op, with the, so that they have the option to buy the property at some future date. So that might be the situation. Now that's the advantage to the buyer. The advantage to the seller is that if their property has been sitting on the market for a period of time, and maybe they've had a difficult time selling it because there's not a lot of buyers, and maybe they've even had a difficult time renting it. It might be a way for them to actually go ahead and rent this out and maybe possibly even get a little bit more cash flow coming in from the tenant because the tenant, as you said, you know, listen, if you want to have the ability to buy this house, you know, for the next year or two, you're going to have to pay me some extra money. So that might be a benefit to the, to the owner of the house. In addition to that, the owner, because the buyer or the renter has got the possibility that they may buy it, they would probably stand to reason that they would take better care of it, okay? So there's an advantage to both sides. 
The disadvantage to a real estate agent or broker is the fact that, remember, an agent or a broker is going to get a commission if they sell the property. If the sale never takes place, then consequently what's going to end up happening is that maybe the only amount of money they're going to earn is for making up the lease in the initial, the, uh, negotiating the lease in the beginning. So there's a good possibility that maybe they've worked very hard, got the deal together, and all of a sudden at the end of a year or two, the buyer says, I'm not going to buy this. I'm going to go someplace else. So the book talks a lot about that, and it's very important that you take a look at both sides. But there can be an advantage to that. Um, so anyway, I'm going to read a little bit of this here. It just says, uh, uh, as mentioned in the beginning of the chapter, uh, imagination is the only limit to the types of seller financing that are possible. In the final section of the chapter, we will review uh, some less conventional arrangements. And some, one of the ones they talk about is the lease option. They say the lease option is a plan is, plan is comprised of two elements, a lease and an option to purchase the lease property within a specific period of time, usually within the term of the lease. So remember, leases are usually for a year or longer. So we were talking somewhere around a year or two years or longer. Um, now, sometimes people will say, where are these kinds of things, where do you see these leases come up? I would venture to say that if you probably looked in the newspaper today, you may very well, at least, and look through all the different areas where there's property for rent, you may very well, and you did that for a week or two, you may very well see an ad show up in there where somebody would say, you know, lease with the option to buy or rent to own or rent credited toward the purchase price. In other words, it'll show its way in different ways. Uh, the other thing, too, is it's not uncommon, for example, if you're looking to maybe buy a house, to turn around, and, but you have to rent in the meantime, you may turn around and find a house and just make that offer to the, to the landlord. You know, say, you know, listen, I, I'm very interested in, in, in renting the house, but I'd really, you know, my long-term goal is I'd like to, I'd like to buy. So is there a possibility that... I can go ahead and rent it from you or lease it from you and then maybe in a year or so have a chance to buy it at a certain price and talk to them about that. Now, if the, if the landlord has been having a difficult time renting property out, they may say yes. They may very well say yes. So you kind of want to keep that in mind. Now, there are other reasons why we use this option technique, and they go through these in here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. First of all, I think we talked about this. Number one is speculation. The prospective purchaser believes that the property will increase in value. Uh, for example, it is soon to be rezoned. However, the, purchase wa the purchaser wants to wait until the change in zoning actually occurs before the purchase of the property. You're going to see, for example, um, you know, people that, uh, for example, want to develop property. You know, they want to take that cow pasture out there or that row crop, or that where the wheat is currently, and they want to they want to take a look at possibly building houses there, and they may very well pay the farmer, the rancher, whoever happens to own the property, may agree to lease it at some amount of money, or may agree to give them an option. And what they're going to do as part of that contract, say, you know what, with that option, we'll agree to go ahead and buy this. But what we want to do is we want to hire an engineer. And we want to find out what the possibility is of getting it rezoned or what the possibility is of getting this subdivision approved. If we can get it approved, then we'll go ahead and buy it. 
if we don't get it approved, then we, we're not going to we're not going to do the deal. And the advantage to the uh, to the owner is the fact that they may be getting some more money, and they and they have a buy-in from somebody that might be interested in developing the property. In the meantime, they can still have the cows out there wandering all over the you know all over the the field or growing their crop. So it's a way that they can get some additional money. On the other hand, the person that might be the developer, they're getting a chance to maybe finally get an engineer in there and get the authorization to see whether or not this is feasible. And if it's not feasible, they, they have not put a lot of money up front. So that could be one reason why they would want to do it. Second thing would be, as they talk about here, investment. It says, uh, investment, the prospective purchaser thinks the property will be a good investment but wants to wait until he or she can find other investors willing to contribute capital and share the risk before actually purchasing the property. Again, that's another technique that people have used. You know, you might be the person that's the one that goes out and locates the property. You have a good feeling that the property, it could be, it could be a single family home, it could be a condo, a townhouse, it could be an apartment house or whatever. You feel that it's a good investment, but it's going to take some time to get together those other investors to go with you to buy the property. So you're going to want to have an option. In other words, you're going to want to tie it up with the idea in mind that if you can't put the group together, you just let the property go. So that's another reason why you would want to do it. Um, they have something here called a comparison. Uh, it says the prospective purchaser thinks the property is a good buy but wants to investigate other properties before coming to a final decision. That depends upon the type of property we're talking about and how easy it is to go in and take a look at those. If they're homes, that's one thing. If you're talking about other types of investments such as, uh, uh, you know, um, small shopping centers or office buildings or things like that, you may need to have some time to have that time to look at those other properties, but you may think that this is a good buy, so you want to put an option on it. Um, another one is profit. It says the purchaser plans on selling the option if the option is assignable for profit. Now, this is one thing that if you read a lot of these uh, how-to-get-rich-quick um, books, <laughs> one of the techniques that they use is where you – Spend your time going out and looking for good deals. In fact, they'll all tell you the same thing. They'll say, you know, it's you don't make money by owning lots of property. You make money by finding good deals, and you make money by finding people that need to sell the property. So you, so anyway, you may possibly structure the option so that you lease the property with an option to buy. With the idea in mind, and again, this is something you have to make sure you're working with your attorney to do this, with the idea in mind that you can turn around and sell that option to somebody else. So the concept is this. You go out, you find something that maybe somebody is selling like a duplex, maybe it's $300,000. You happen to know that it's a really good deal. You know that it's based on the fact that you're out in the market looking all the time. You agree to lease that property with an option to buy. Maybe it needs something done on it but you're not putting a lot of money up front. And then what ends up happening is then you go out and find somebody that wants to buy it and you sell them that option and then you earn a profit on that. Okay, that's the idea. Maybe you tied it up for 300000 and maybe you could turn around and sell it. You know, the property's worth $350,000 and what you're going to do is sell the option. Now, you may say that sounds crazy, but I'm here to tell you that this is how the stock market works every day. <laughs> The stock market uses the concept of options constantly where people are trading, not even owning the stock. They're just trading what we call options, which are the opportunity 
to turn around and buy a stock, you know, have a set price so that if it goes up, they can turn around and buy it and then resell it again. And then we have the other way where if it goes down, the stock goes down. So those are called puts and calls in the stock market. So this is not an uncommon thing. That, in other words, what I'm saying is it's used in other types of investment vehicles. But it sounds sort of strange in real estate, but it's done every day in the stock market. Uh, another thing that they talk about is time to acquire cash to close. So you may, for example, turn around and say, you know, I really want to buy that house uh, or that condo or whatever, and I, I move to town, and I'm going to go ahead and lease your property, and I'll go ahead and give you option money, but I need to have time because I'm getting money coming in from maybe somebody's died and they've left me some money in their will, or maybe I'm, I'm cashing out of a retirement plan, or maybe I need to sell some investment property or whatever, but you want to tie it up at this point and you want to reduce your holding costs down to just the lease payments and not have to make them actual monthly payments because when you, after you buy the property, your, prop, your payments are going to be fairly a lot lower because you're going to be coming in with cash from other areas. And then last thing they talk about here is, uh, I think almost last, uh, the, uh, one of the other things they talk about qualifying. It says a buyer is unable to qualify for the loan at the present but has a reason to believe circumstances will change shortly and that he or she will be able to qualify for a loan within the next year. For example, perhaps the buyer is expecting a raise, will soon pay off another debt, and thereby reduce his or her monthly obligations. So the, the concept is, is that you may be sitting there and saying, you know, I'd really like to buy this place, and I'm not quite making enough money right now, but I know I'm going to get promoted. I know I'm getting a new job. I know my wife's getting promoted. I need to pay the truck, the car off, whatever, and, but you still want to tie the property up. So you may lease it and then ask for the option to buy. In fact, I don't think it hurts, and I've had people do this to, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt if you're in that kind of, uh, you know, if you're thinking along that line is that when you're looking at property to rent, just ask the people, say, is there a possibility that maybe you could agree to maybe credit to the rent to me or, uh, or let me buy it at some future date or even use the real word and say, Lease it or rent it from you with an option to buy it next year. And then you can start talking about the terms. Okay? And um, so anyway, um, the other thing they talk about here, too, is that uh, last thing here is, is uh, rent credit. Uh, when you're doing this option, you may have where, for example, that you may have the landlord agree to the fact that you're going to take some rent that you're going to be paying maybe some of the rent that you're paying, and help you credit it towards a down payment. So, for example, it says the buyer and the seller may agree to credit part or all of the lease payments to a down payment, loan amount, or sales price, which would reduce both the down payment and the necessary loan amount, making it easier for the buyer to make the purchase, of an, uh, make the purchase in another six months or a year. So, again, it's a technique. It's a technique that could be utilized. You could turn around and say, I'm going to rent it for you know, $1,500 a month. I'll give you an extra $200 a month, and I want that money to be used as credit as towards part of my down payment. That's the concept behind it. Um, okay. Now, they do mention a couple other things that you need to have. Make sure that you have in the option contract. Okay. And remember, we can have... We can either have a lease with an option to buy as one contract. We can have a lease as one contract and an option to buy as another contract. Okay, so 
That's what they're basically talking here about in the book. So it goes on and it says, an option is required to include all of the terms of the underlying contract. So they give you some examples or show you what should be included. This means that, the, remember, this is a contract. The binding contract is formed at the moment the optionee exercises his or her option to purchase. Required information includes but is not necessarily limited to the following things. You have to have the name and the addresses of the optioner and the optionee. You have to have the date of the option, the nature and the amount of consideration. Consideration, remember, is it could be money. It can be um, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, your motorhome, your gun collection. It's got to be something of value. Words indicating that an option is being given, the date that the option expires, and the purchase price and essential terms of the option. So, in other words, within that contract, you're negotiating everything up front. You're saying, for example, I want to have, I want to lease the property for two years with the option to buy I any time, meaning that I have that right within that two years. If I decide to exercise that option, the purchase price is going to be, and you're going to set the price down, say, for example, $300,000. You're going to put the terms down that you're going to turn around and maybe assume the existing financing, or maybe you're going to get a new loan. You're going to put down, just like you would with a purchase agreement, what the interest rates are going to be, what the length of the loan is going to be. You're going to specify all those terms in the contract. What you don't want to do is get to the point where you're ready to exercise the option and then find out you're into another circumstance of now negotiating price, terms, and all the other things. You want to know that when you do agree to this, you can make it actually happen. Down below, they give you an example of how this option may work, and I'll kind of... Uh, Go through this. Hopefully, this is not fairly complex. It says the seller landlord leases property to the buyer, the tenant, for a specific term, six months to one year, etc., with the permission that part of the rental payments may be applied to the purchase price if the tenant decides to buy before the lease expires. And they give you an example. And they say Mavis is selling her house for $75,000. Yui Anderson, I don't know where they come up with these names, is interested in buying the property but will not be able to qualify for a loan until he receives a raise, which he expects in two months. Yui and Mavis agree that Yui will rent the property for six months at $500 a month, which is cheap by today's rates, and half of the rental payments being applicable apply applicable to the sales price if Yui buys within six months. Yui also agrees to get an option. Agree, I'm sorry. Yui also gets an option, which means that Mavis agrees to not sell to anyone else within the six-month period of time. If Yui decides to buy after six months, he will pay seventy-three thousand five hundred, the amount still owed during due after deducting the rental payments. Okay, so that's the way that that would work. Now, another thing that you have to keep in mind is that once there are advantages and disadvantages to this option agreement. Uh, the, the first, probably, I would say the biggest, uh, well, actually, they tell you right here, they tell you that from a seller's perspective, the big disadvantage that the seller has during this period of time is that the seller, the seller cannot sell the property. So, for example, it says the primary disadvantage of the lease option is that the seller cannot sell the property to anyone other than the tenant during the term of the option. That becomes very important for the seller to realize that. 
you know, like even if it's a rental piece of property, you know, uh, you know, there may be where, you know, you've tried very, very hard to sell it. You haven't been able to sell it. All of a sudden what ends up happening is now you enter into this lease agreement with an option to buy. And what ends up happening is that somebody comes up and says, you know, hey, listen, I, I, you know, I, you know, maybe the house has started to go up in value. And maybe you could sell it at the price that you wanted to sell it before, but you can't sell it while that tenant is in there with that option to buy. In fact, actually, they say that it's a disadvantage. The one thing to keep in mind is that if, if it is a lease, a real lease, you could sell the property, you know, to somebody else while the tenant is in there. Okay, so keep that in mind. If I have a lease on the property, if all I had was the lease, I could sell that property to a new buyer. With the idea in mind that as soon as that lease expired, the new buyer could occupy the property. With an option, on the other hand, I can't sell the property because the person that lives in that house, the renter, has the option to buy. So anytime during that period of time, they could just say, I want to buy it. So I can't do that. It prevents me. So that's the biggest disadvantage to the seller. Okay. Now, they do go on a little bit further, and they talk about the fact of... Um, they talk about the fact of, uh, and uh, you know, when it comes to the real estate agent, the big problem with these leases with the options to buy is the fact that the real estate agent might be in a situation where they're going to put all the work in and not earn a commission. So they say a problem with a lease option agreement is that too often the optionee, the tenant, does not exercise the right to purchase. The result is a waste of effort with no sale and no commission. So what they've done here is they've gone down and they've almost come up with, with like a contract for sales, so to speak. They say, they go on, they say, why, why the lease option has such a high mortality rate is arguably, that, arguably, but there are at least two characteristics uh, inherent in, in every lease option agreement that promise trouble. Number one, the prospective buyer's minimal cash investment, sometimes as little as the first and the last lease payment. So in other words, the reason why these things, why the buyer may not very well buy the property is because they don't have a lot of money in some cases on the line. So that's one of the problems. Number two, it says the prospective buyers extend occupancy beyond the property before a commitment, uh, before the commitment is made. What they're really doing is they're saying that, that, you know, the tenant may get to the end of this transaction and may decide either because they want, want, you know, are going to get an agreement from you that they want to stay longer. Maybe their intention was, is, hey, you know what, I'll rent it for six months or a year, and then I know I'm going to get my raise, and six months or a year goes by, and they don't get their raise. And what they do is they start to ask you and say, well, can I push it out? Can I stay a little bit longer? The problem with that is that the option will have expired because maybe you've set that for six months or a year, but they're still in the house. So that's what they're talking about, Okay. Um, go on from there. So what, one of the ways that they talk about that you can kind of work with this is to, is to basically, um, basically work out a contract ahead of time that takes into account all of these different circumstances. And, and essentially, let me tell you what this is rather than reading it. What we're saying is, is that we would have an agreement where we as the agent would have sat down and said to both the buyer and the seller where they have come to an agreement that they're going to buy the house, the buyer's going to buy, 
but that the sale is not going to take place right now. It's going to take place at some distant point in the future. So what they're saying is, is that you could actually sit down and negotiate that contract that it will take place, say, for example, next year. The people will release the house for this year and then execute or buy it next year. Uh, again, how feasible that is really depends upon what the market is. But the concept is, is that if you enter in some kind of a purchase agreement, you have now set forth the fact that when that sale does take place, you as the agent are going to get paid a commission. So that's what they're talking about. To move on from there, okay, the next thing that they talk about in here, another creative method is something called equity exchanges. <clears throat> and what, equi <clears throat> excuse me, what equity exchanges are is where you have a piece of property that you want to utilize as, if you will, as a down payment for the purchase of another property. So what the book does, and I think I can find it in here, they give you a very, very sort of complex um, language, and I'm going to try to sort through this. I made up a little PowerPoint slide where they're going through and they've got a lot of this, you know, he said, she said. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up this and try to see if I can explain this in as simple a terms as I possibly can. What happens is, is that one of the creative ways that you can work with it is that if somebody else has, the buyer already has a piece of property that they own, and what they want to do is rather than, if you will, what they really want to do is they want to use that house as a down payment on the property that they're going to be buying. That's the concept behind it. Now, where this would basically come in, is, for example, maybe somebody has a duplex and they decide that they don't want to be in the duplex rental business anymore or actually have, you know, two or three or four units. They want to have one. On the other hand, you happen to have a buyer that has a house, a single-family house, and they want to move up. They want to move up in the investment chain. The other person wants to kind of move down and get another piece of property. So what they're going to do is rather than cashing out and selling, they're actually going to exchange, or the easiest way I say this is they're going to use one property as a down payment for the other. Now, you can go back and read in the book, but let me see if I can show you this in a PowerPoint slide here, what is going on. And uh, we can bring it up on the old plasma screen, I think. Okay. The people that are in this scenario here is that we have somebody here by the name of Ben. Okay? That's one individual. Okay? The second person's name is Kathy. Okay, so those are the two people, and I've put those side by side in a column. And it helps when you're doing this kind of thing to at least have things laid out side by side. And this is a fairly easy, simple example. Now, what I've done here on this side is I've put down the items that, you know, you know, in other words, the words. So here what we do is on this, on this row we have the sales price that the, both individuals want to get. So Ben wants to actually sell his property for $174,000. Kathy wants to sell her property for $115,000. That's what they both believe the market happens to be. Now what happens is, is Ben, who has this larger piece of property, he has an existing mortgage on it right now of $127,000. And I like the idea that they're using simple numbers. Kathy, on the other hand, she has a property that is worth or I'm sorry, that has a mortgage on the property that is $80,000.
Now, the first thing that we have to do in order to figure this thing out in its most simple terms is figure out how much equity each individual has. In this case, if we take the 174,000, we take away the 120, uh, take the 174,000 dollars sales price and take away the mortgage, the equity that Ben Ben happens to have is 47,000 dollars. That's what his equity in the property is. When we do the same thing with Kathy, she has a sales price of 115. She owes 80,000 dollars, so her equity in the property is 35,000 dollars. And essentially what Kathy wants to do is this. She wants to say to Ben, okay, Ben, I'd like to buy your property. What I want to do is I want to use the equity in my property, the $35,000 I have in equity, and I want to give you that property as part of the down payment. So that's where I say CA equity. CA is just short for Kathy's equity. I trying to make this bold enough so you could see it was a little difficult, so I had to abbreviate anyway. So part of her down payment is going to be in the form of the equity she has here is going to be $35,000. Kathy's also going to give a down payment of $12,000, okay? And when we do the math, that's going to be able to take care of the equity that Ben has in the property. So in other words, what we're doing is we're saying Kathy is using her property as part of the down payment plus some cash, and this is typically called, in, in the real estate business, is called an exchange. There's quite a bit more to this than I've done, as an, but this is just trying to get the example across to you. Typically, the reason why people will want to do this also is because of the fact that they will be able to not have to, they'll be able to delay the payment of capital gains tax on the property to the Internal Revenue Service. So they're able to use the full amount of their equity. So there's a lot of advantages to this. The, where this really does work, though, is, is where you basically have somebody that wants to stay in the real estate investment market but wants to either trade up or trade down. Now, there's some other issues in this example here, such as Kathy has something called mortgage relief, which we would have to talk about later on. She's getting relief from some of that mortgage. Um, and we're not considering the costs that are associated with this, you know, the title, the escrow fees or whatever. But the idea is that she's using this as a down payment. I've also seen people do things such as using notes. If you remember back where we talked about where somebody would maybe sell a property and carry back their equity in the form of a note and a deed of trust. I have seen where people have used that note and deed of trust as a down payment or part of the payment to somebody that wants that, that they want to buy a property from. So, for example, you may have where somebody owns a duplex or a fourplex, wants to sell it, wants to get out of it, just wants to really kind of kick back and just receive a monthly income, doesn't want to put up with the headache anymore. And you have somebody else that maybe has taken back a loan on a property they've sold. And what they do is they say, you know what, I will give you that note as part of my down payment on this property. And it, it works for those people because the one individual doesn't want to do the management anymore and the other person that's giving them the note is interested in doing that. So that's another creative technique that you see people use. Anyway, moving on from there, th it also talks about some other techniques in here. Another one, if I can move back here, is called the participation loan. Now, this also may sound a little bit flaky, a little bit weird, but I will tell you that in the commercial marketplace, it's not uncommon for lenders, in other words, you know, like life insurance companies, um, 
pension plans to lend money on a shopping center or an office building and say, we'll lend you the money, but we also want to have a piece of the action. We want to have a piece of the equity. So they may very well turn around and say to the developer, okay, we will lend you the money to buy that shopping center that you're going to buy and fix up and, you know, and operate, but we'll lend you the money at, say, 6% interest, but we also want to have a certain percentage of the ownership so that when the property does finally increase in value, we will be making money, insurance company, we will be making money not only on the interest we charge you, but also on the appreciation of the property itself. So this is done in the commercial area. And again, if you think some of these programs are weird, they're used every day, just not in the area usually of real estate, small real estate investment properties. Or maybe they're used more in the stock market when we talk about options and things like that. But anyway, I want to kind of underline some things here that I think that are important. In a participation loan or shared equity loan, the buyers enter into a form of partnership with the investor who provides cash for the sale. The investor may be the seller, a bank, or a private investor. So in other words, this could be a number of people. It could be where a seller sells a property and says, I'm going to, I will maintain a certain equity share of interest in the property when I sell it. It might be an investor. Okay, somebody that just wants to invest in real estate but doesn't want to put up with the headache of managing it on a day-to-day -day basis. And maybe they say, you know what, if I invest with this person who wants to buy and live in the home, there's a good possibility they're going to take care of it and it's going to increase in value. So it's a good investment for me. So, again, that would be that kind of an individual. Anyway, so it says the investor may be a seller, a bank, or a private. Instead of charging interest, the investor uh, interest the investor in a participation plan receives a percentage of the equity, the difference between the property's value and the indebtedness secured by the property. Okay? Now, again, you know, sometimes you may even see this in the form of people that are trying to help their kids buy properties. Uh, it's not uncommon nowadays when kids go to college. Uh, what will happen is the parents will sit there and say, okay, we're going to send little Johnny or Mary off to college. And they're going to be going to college for four years, and they might be going to UC Davis, Sac State, you know, uh, some college, some university someplace, and they have to have a place to live. And there's basically one of several ways that they can do that. They can, you know, the kids can go there and live in a dorm if they happen to have some rooms for them, or they can move into an apartment and share it with somebody. Or a third way that some parents will do is they'll say, you know what, I'm going to buy a townhouse, a condominium, a small house, something. My son or daughter are going to live there. What will happen is I'll put the money up, you know, for them to buy it. They will make the monthly payments. And at the end, when they graduate and they move on and go to the next school, we will sell that property, and we're going to go ahead and split the profits. And we'll talk about how we do that. Maybe the kids will end up getting, if, if there's a profit of, let's say, uh, $20,000 in profit, it might be where the parents will say, I'll take five. The children will get 15. So what will end up happening is that will be some form of equity share relationship. So you see that. Uh, when um, I see that quite a bit with people out where the kids are going to school and moving away from home. So that's where you'll see this kind of a thing come up, but also you can have where people 
will decide that they want to get in this market of participating with homeowners when they get ready to buy a property because they feel it's a little bit more safe, a little bit more secure, that the people are going to keep the property up. The big thing with these loans or these programs is you have to have a document that outlines exactly what you're going to be doing and who owns what, who is going to be responsible for what, who's going to pay what. So that's what we're going to be talking about in a minute. If you have, if you're going to enter into one of these agreements, you want to be talking about who's going to make the monthly payments, who's going to pay the insurance, who's going to pay for the maintenance, uh, who's going to pay for upgrades. Okay, so you want to have all that lined out. And then, by the way, when does this agreement end? Okay, so we'll talk about, it shows you in here, um, it goes down, so the first thing they talk about here, the important points to consider when arranging a participation loan are listed below. Number one, how, how will the loan be applied? In other words, an investor may simply put up the cash for the down payment or the primary lender may reduce the interest rate in exchange for a share of the equity. So how is that going to be applied? Are you, as the investor, are you going to go in and say, okay, Pat, you want to buy this house for your family. What we're going to do is I'm going to put up, you know, 10000 20000 whatever that amount of money is. And when essentially what I'm going to be doing is, is that I'm going to be buying down your loan. So typically what would end up happening is your payments based on 6% interest or, you know, might be, I don't know, $1,000 a month. So what we're going to do is we're going to put up some money and then essentially that's going to be used as points to pay down your loan so your interest rates is not going to be 6%, it's going to be 5%. That might be the way. So you have to think about how is that money going to be applied when it's put into the transaction? Where is it going to go? Is it going to be just as a down payment to just try to get the person so that you're essentially going to get a lower loan amount? Are you going to use it to pay points? Where is the money going to be going? Okay, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing that they talk about, let me see here. Okay, the second thing is uh, how will the equity be calculated? If you enter into one of these agreements, how is this going to work? And so they go, how is this going to be calculated? Uh, it goes on, equity is the difference between the value of the property and the outstanding indebtedness of the secured by the property. So how are you going to figure out that equity? How are you going to figure out what the proportional share of that equity is going to be. In other words, when I put down a down payment, is that down payment going to be where I'm going to have a share, a 20% share in the, in the growth of the equity of the property in the future? Is it going to be a 50% share? In other words, I have to figure that up front. I have to know how I'm going to do that. The next thing that we want to know is what, what percentage of the equity will the investor receive? I think we already talked about this, but it says, and I'll read this, it says, this amount is negotiable, but it should be a large enough to provide at least a market rate of return for the investor. And factors to influence uh, uh, this regard are the amount of participation, the loan in proportion to the value of the property, uh, looking at things like the projected rate of increase in the value of the property, the rate at which any conventional financing will be paid off. So they go through and talk about what percentage of equity will the investor receive. Very important. Now, the next one here is when will the investor be repaid? Okay, if you put your money in the property, then when in the world are you going to get your money back out again? So it says the investor may cash out his or her share of equity at a prearranged time, 
For example, after five years or else at the time the property is sold. So, for example, if you're going to put your, if you're going to put your money in as a down payment or some way or another, how long is that going to be for? You know, it's, it's a big difference, for example, if you say, well, I'm going to give you, you know, $5,000 towards the down payment, and I understand that, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to sell the house in the next couple of years and I'll get my money back versus, wait a minute, you, I'm going to give you $5,000 and we're going to wait until you, you know, until you pay it off, which might be 30 years later. So you have to know as an investor, when are you going to get that money back? Another important fact. Um, Another thing that you would want to keep in mind is how are things like improvements going to be handled? And improvements would be things such as uh, improvements would be things such as you go in there, you live there for about a year, and you decide you're going to take out all the tile countertops you could put in granite countertops. Who pays for that? Is it going to be the is it going to be the people that live in there? Are you know the people that are occupying it? Are they paying for it? The concept behind it is, let's say you buy this property, and maybe when you bought it, it's not that it needed a lot of work, but it really was starting to become functionally obsolete. You know, in other words, like the dishwasher was old, the countertops were kind of wearing out, the sink was wearing out, the carpet needed to be replaced. So the concept is, is you're living there with it on a day-to-day -day basis, and now you decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and fix that stuff. I'm going to go ahead and put new cabinets in new carpet, new dishwasher, new oven, all that stuff. Well, then, if you do that, that's actually going to increase the value of the property. It's going to increase it. So if you're the one that's putting up the money that's increasing the value of the property, then should you be the one that gets all of the, that gets all of the increase as a result of your improvements? And if you have, then how are you valuing those? So, for example, you may have redone the entire kitchen, in the property, and you may have put in twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and you know that may have increased the value of the property maybe by ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand, but whatever. How are you going to figure out how much of that is yours and how much of that goes to the investor? Very important fact. And uh, the next thing is, is who's going to be responsible for things like paying the taxes and the insurance? Is it going to be the investor or is it going to be the owner? Okay. Typically, I would say it should be the owner. But again, you want to know who that's going to be. And uh, let me see. I, I can't emphasize enough the last part of this here, which is talking about the fact that the that you really do need to have the services of um, you know of an experienced real estate attorney and uh, an experienced real estate broker, so that they can counsel you on how these transactions go together. I have spoken to many people where people look at formalizing these kinds of transactions, these equity participation. Um, again, as time goes by, people become very, very creative in how they can put these transactions together. And, um, you know, it's only limited by their creativity. So you, you kind of want to keep that in mind when you're dealing with any of these, uh, any of these deals. The other thing you want to keep in mind, too, is that uh, all of this stuff that you're doing, needs to be something that is above board, that is put in writing, that is recorded so that everybody knows about it. For example, if you are carrying, I could just go down the list, if you are carrying a loan back, if you're the owner of the property and you're carrying your equity back in the form of a loan, you need to make sure that you have a, a signed note, that that's been signed, that you have a signed deed of trust, 
that it's been notarized, that it's been recorded at the county recorder's office so the entire world knows that that loan exists. If you happen to be carrying your equity back in the form of a second, you need to also make sure that that note is signed, that the deed of trust is, is, is notarized and it's recorded, and also that you put in what's called a request for notice of default. So anytime that you're in a second position, what you want to have happen is that for any reason, if that seller, if that buyer does not make the monthly payments, you want, you want to be notified that there's a problem so that you can step in and do something to remedy the situation. What you don't want to have happen is have the property go on, uh, go to foreclosure, be sold at foreclosure, and the next thing you know, you're standing there and you all of the equity that you have is gone. Because remember, the person that sells that's going to foreclose on that property is concerned about their position. They're not concerned about yours. Uh, a couple other things that I want to mention along that way is that you want to really make sure of uh, under uh, when we talked about the all-inclusive note and deed of trust the last time. Again, I sort of emphasize the fact that title insurance companies, which are a good place to go, have these documents that they've used in the past. You want to make sure that the language that you're using in things like an all-inclusive note and deed of trust is language that is legal and everybody understands what it is. You also want to make sure, again, that everything is signed, it's recorded uh, at the county recorder's office, and everybody knows that it exists. Okay, you want to make sure. Same thing with a land contract. If you enter into a land contract, you also want to look the problem you can see, though, with things like a land contract is the fact that it's really dependent upon the person that's holding that contract, in other words, the seller, at actually making sure that they do what they say they're going to do. So you want to make sure that there's something that's independent of both the, the buyer and the seller, that once those obligations have been paid for by the buyer, that that title is delivered to the buyer. That it's not like, well, the seller took off with the money and we can't find them. You want to make sure that that's, that's squared away. Uh, the other thing that they talked about in here under exchanges. Exchanges, uh, if you're in the real estate business, you'll hear it come out in a lot of different ways. Sometimes you'll hear where an investor, I always love this, an investor comes to town and they're trying to buy a property. They're coming out of an exchange. Exchanges is, are an area that you ha takes a lot of expertise. There are people that are called exchange facilitators. In other words, people that work on making sure that this exchange is going to go along correctly. Uh, it's very difficult in many cases to actually find the individual, the specific individual that wants your house in exchange for theirs. So in many cases, what we end up going into is something called a delayed exchange. And what happens is, is that that has some very, very intricate, detailed things that need to be done when you're performing those. So, for example, if you want to trade the house up and or property up, you're actually going to be doing something where you're going to be, first of all, opening up like an escrow account where you're going to, the money is going to go. You're not going to have access to the money. This all has to follow the IRS rules, by the way. And you will maybe sell the property and the proceeds of that sale goes into that escrow account that you cannot touch. In the meantime, there's a specific period of time in which you have to have identified properties that you're willing, ready, willing, and able to, to move in, that equity into. So there's a time limit in which you have to do that. 
Also, the entire transaction has to be completed within a specific period of time. And if you don't follow those rules, you can get yourself in trouble, and the client can lose the possibility of the tax savings they're going to have. So that's why it's very important that you understand how that, that kind of stuff works. Uh, going on from there, we talked a couple other things that we talked about that I want to emphasize the, um, the, uh, the uh, lease option. That's another one that sounds really good on the surface, but what you really have to do is think to yourself when you're getting into this is, wait a minute, I want to make sure that, you know, if I am the renter and I am giving this seller some money and I decide that I want to exercise this option, I want to make sure that this document or this agreement is ironclad. It's going to work. I want to make sure that I'm not going to find out later on that the seller sold the property out from under me or that the seller took the money and disappeared. I want to make sure that this is going to go through. So again, that's why you want to have good advice and counsel on how to handle the transaction. Remember, especially if you're a real estate agent or a broker, you're probably one of the people that if people get harmed, they're going to come after. So you want to make sure that everything is legal and above board when you're working with it. Uh, again, any of these lease options is something where you're going to really want to make sure you have good counsel when you're working with it. The last thing uh, I want to mention in there was when we talked about the equity sharing. Equity sharing, again, is, is you know, the simple example I use is where maybe, you know, the, you have a son or a daughter that's going to be going to college. You know, you say, you know what, hey, maybe it might even help pay for college if my, my daughter moves in and rents this condo or owns this condo for four years, and hey, you know what, the way properties have been going, maybe it's going to go up, and I'll maybe, maybe I'll make enough money that I can turn around and help pay our college bill at the end. And that's, that's in its most simplest form. Remember, in that particular case, as a parent, you may have, may have, may have some control over that. On the other hand, if you're going to be taking money out of your pocket and then putting it down for uh, somebody to buy a piece of property, and you're going to share in that equity, you want to make sure that everything is in writing and that everybody knows about it and all the appropriate documentation has been signed, notarized, recorded, whatever needs to be done in order to make sure that, that the transaction is going to go forward and that you lined out when you're going to buy the property or when the property is going to be sold, when you're going to get your equity out, how you're going to handle the costs associated with owning the property, and so on and so forth. So anyway, there's a lot to that chapter. A lot of it is creative. Every time you turn around, you'll find out somebody else will be coming up with another different creative way of doing it. Just make sure that whenever you're doing this stuff that you're sitting and talking to your real estate broker and making sure you're getting the guidance from them and from an attorney when you're entering into any of these, uh, if you will, real estate creative financing programs. Thank you very much for watching. We'll see you back here the next time. Bye-bye.